Now, as more cases of COVID-19 arise, people are being cautioned to work from home or stay home if sick. But what if you don't have a home? I heard some uh, stories which sort of almost bordered on the absurd of outreach workers going out and having to tell people who were sleeping on the street, look, we just need you to sleep a metre or two apart. Don't huddle together for warmth. (laughs) You need to sleep apart. It was one hell of a headline. Rough sleeping all but eliminated in New Zealand. The government's pledged $100 million to keep 1,200 motel rooms available for the homeless for a year. But is housing rough sleepers in motel rooms a solution or a sticking plaster? But advocates argue there should be more emphasis on permanent solutions and it should be a legal requirement to house people. I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, COVID-19 forced New Zealand to take a giant leap forward in its efforts to eliminate rough sleeping. The question now is how to maintain it. First off, let's draw the distinction between the homeless and rough sleepers. Isaac Davison is social issues reporter at the New Zealand Herald. In New Zealand, homelessness is defined as it's a sort of catch-all term for anyone in severe housing deprivation. So it's not just people on the street. It includes uh, people who are sleeping in garages, sleeping in cars, uh, sleeping on their uh, relative's couch. But we are talking here about rough sleeping. So what is that defined as? So that's someone that uh, is, is, is literally on the street. So they do not have habitable accommodation. The best data we have, the most recent data we have on these two, is that there's about 41,000 homeless in New Zealand, and of that, about 4,000 are rough sleepers. That's 2013 census data, so it's obviously, um, we don't have great data on this, that's partly because of 2018 census issues, but that's that's the best guide. So about, about 4,000 rough sleepers in New Zealand and about 40, 41,000 homeless. That's amazing because it, like, in an era of precision and numbers, gaining reliable data in this aspect is really, really difficult and actually, to be honest, almost impossible, you would think. That's right. I mean, it's partly the nature of homelessness that some people are homeless one day and not the next. And um, as particularly you saw during COVID lockdowns, quite a few people just wouldn't, would have gone and slept on couches of, of relatives and things like that just to just to be a bit more protected. But part of the issue is is the census problem that we didn't have a good census in 2018. Um, and so we that's the best way of, of, of working out whether people are in housing deprivation. And so the calculations are still being made on just how big our homeless population is. And now, well, they're still calculating that we've got the problem of COVID that's come into it. So it's really... Um, it means our data on this is, is pretty patchy. When it comes to helping homeless people or rough sleepers, who does that? It's a combination of government and NGOs and um, to an extent government's playing a growing role in particular in terms of um, funding motels for people to go into. So it's a combination of NGOs like Salvation Army, uh, LifeWise, they do a lot of the on-the-ground work, which includes outreach workers going out and actually literally finding people on the street and saying, are you OK? Um, maybe getting them into um, an office environment or into a cafe like they have on K Road and, and going over you know, what your issues are, how did you get here in the first place, and, um, uh, and, and, and addressing those. And then government funds a lot of the uh, the next steps. So they might go into emergency housing, which is sort of a week at a time. They might go into transitional housing, which is more like three months at a time. State housing, which is ideally permanent, or but increasingly housing first. And housing first is the main main way of responding um, to homelessness mm. now. 
Housing First is a big collection of NGOs which find landlords willing to rent their properties out and basically act as property managers. They place homeless people in the houses for as long as they need, make sure they're taking care of the place, pay for any property damage and so on. Put simply, that is taking people as they are. That is um, not saying you need to be sober or uh, have your health issues sorted or working. We just say, let's just get you in a house a permanent house, and then let's deal with the problems. And that's generally accepted now as as the main and best response to homelessness in New Zealand. Reuben has been living on Wellington streets on and off for years. He says word is getting out about the virus, but the threat of community outbreak isn't top of mind. Actually got worries of our own to actually go through each day and to worry about that. I don't know, it's bottom of the priority list. We're at St Peter's Anglican Church on Willis Street in central Wellington. The Archdeacon is Stephen King. While Reuben may not be so worried yet about a COVID-19 outbreak, Archdeacon King is. We will have people who are extremely ill whose place of shelter will be, or maybe it'll be St Peter's, or it'll be the doorways that they sleep in and that we walk past them in the mornings. We have that discussion about people hunkering down and and, um, isolating themselves until the the illness passes, I think there will be some people for whom there is nowhere. And so what happens to them? So we're in sort of late February, early March, and it's clear that COVID is going to have some big effects on the world. What would the fears should COVID spread within the homeless or rough sleeping kind of community? Sure. So there's there's two main issues. One is that uh, homeless people are more likely to have chronic health conditions. So they are one of the most vulnerable groups when a pandemic like this came, in a similar category to in a rest home. More likely to have respiratory conditions, uh, less likely to seek help, not very visible, and so they would be, um, if, if there were some sort of spread within homeless community, they, they would be in a lot of trouble. So that's the first issue. Second issue is their potential role in spreading a virus. Um, it's very hard when your know, main public health messages to stay at home when you don't have a home and you're on the street. And so part of the uh, public health response involved taking homeless people to a place where they were less likely to um, be a part of the chain of transmission. Before uh, we got into lockdown, I heard some uh, stories which sort of almost bordered on the absurd of outreach workers going out and having to tell people who were sleeping on the street, this is before we went into lockdown, Look, we just need you to sleep a metre or two apart. So imagine with all these chronic problems they already have and difficulties of saying, um, actually, don't huddle together for warmth. <laughs> you need to sleep apart. And that sort of sums it up, really. There was also another case. I interviewed a couple who were living in a tent in Waiheke. So they're, they're homeless and um, they had a young young four-year-old daughter and they were out of the loop. And they came over a day before lockdown on the ferry to discover that there was a pandemic and they had nowhere to go. And so they went to it, came in to go to a doctor's appointment and realised that they had come right into the middle a day before lockdown. And um, so they managed quickly, luckily, they got in touch with Life, LifeWise and were placed in a motel, uh, I think, that very same day. But just gives you a sense of the vulnerability of these people. If you felt vulnerable when you were being told to go into lockdown or, uh, you know, do things differently, imagine, imagine having nowhere to go. Well, over the last five, six weeks, I actually live in a car. I'm basically homeless. Uh, no fault of anybody else but my own. I'm working my way out of it. But the unfortunate thing I have is that I can't go to Winds and knock on the door and speak to somebody 
because the doors are closed. I don't have internet. I don't have the resources, technology, computers and that to go and do online shopping. I can't go to the warehouse and buy new shoes. My shoes have got holes in them. But to me, I have to wait until that's over and done with. We've got 4,000 people sleeping on the streets, a global pandemic of unknown proportions approaching like a tornado, and the creeping and very real fear that it could ravage the homeless community far quicker than we could hope to respond to it. So, what did we do? These uh, NGOs saw the potential for these risks very early. So, I think it was a day before lockdown where it all really kicked into gear. So... I mentioned that situation before where there was just these preliminary warnings of people being told to distance on the street and that. Well, it got to the situation where it said, we can't have these people on the street. It's a risk to them. It's a risk to others. So we need to get them into um, get, get a roof over their head, basically, whatever whatever we can do. So uh, these NGOs went out and literally started getting people off the street with their agreement, of course, with their consent, and shuttling them into uh, motels and... It was an incredible operation in a way, and it depended on, on, on a few things, but partly just this great ambition of people whose own lives were uncertain at that time, uh, going around, picking people up, uh, putting them in a van. In one case, so LifeWise was worried about distancing, so it had one van and it decided it could only take one person at a time wow. for distancing measures, so a homeless person that they'd found, put them at the back of the van, they had the driver in the front, and then they were driving all across Auckland uh, to motel rooms, and that was the key part of the equation, is that all of a sudden all these motel rooms were vacant because tourism was stopping and stopped uh, overnight, so all of a sudden you had this capacity. One of those outreach workers was Aaron Hendry from LifeWise. He spoke to our producer, Jesse Chang, who's with me now. Hello. Hi, Emil. What did you and Aaron talk about? So something really interesting that Aaron Hendry talked about was the fact that for a lot of the young people that he worked with, COVID-19 just wasn't a big deal to them. And for us, that might seem bizarre, but you have to remember, for these young people, their biggest concern was, you know, they're sleeping on the street, where the next meal was coming from, the violence that they were surrounded with. COVID-19 was the least of their worries. I think for a lot of our young people specifically, um, and I think this is probably a similar case for some of our elders as well, there wasn't maybe as much understanding. You know, for a lot of us, we heard about COVID-19 and it was this big thing, right? But when your life is chaos and you've been living in that sort of chaos and, and um, craziness for a long time, this was just another thing. And for a lot of them, COVID-19 meant that all of their natural support structures that were there were suddenly not there. And all those people that are sort of around that can sort of help them to get through what they're going through suddenly weren't as accessible. So like our team was one of those few teams that were still able to really like be on the ground and supporting them, but a lot of their safety networks had disappeared. And so... Um, helping Aurangatahi sort of understand how serious COVID-19 was hard when it was something they couldn't see. And the big stuff they were dealing with every day, the poverty, the mental illness. The, it just seems so much yeah, bigger. The violence that happens in their communities, that, that's every day that was there. And so they were still in survival mode just trying to survive. Another thing to remember is that these youth workers had to find a lot of these rough sleepers. And so to do that, they 
Aaron Hendry said they used things like social media. Um, they were driving around to car parks to try and find them, leaning out of their car windows to talk to them because of social distancing rules. Um, and it was actually also quite scary for these youth workers because at that point they didn't know who had COVID-19. Um, but Aaron Hendry said it was just really important for them to still continue doing that work because they didn't want people to be in unsafe places overnight. Here's an example of a young man that was in our service. He then, you know, stuff happened. He ended up going back into the street. We supported him to get into this accommodation. Um, and then in the middle of all of this going on, he had a dodgy landlord who kicked him out on the street. We get a call sort of the next morning, had been on the street all night. And you're trying to explain to this guy that there's this, you know, COVID-19 going on. Well, I mean, when you are literally sleeping in the street tonight, that's not really something you're worried about. And so for us, it was more about how do we support them to be safe and to be in accommodation and to be supported. So once again, he was lucky enough to be over 18. Um, we were able to get him into an uh, emergency hotel. We were able to work with some other community organisations to wrap some support around him. And that was the way we were able to keep people together and safe. It wasn't necessarily about caring too much about the viruses, but actually, hey, here's a safe space for you to sleep, and here's some food, and here's, you know, let's make sure you're looked after and cared for. Solely from the point of view of somebody whose only goal in life is to eradicate homelessness from the society in which they live, this is a tremendous thing to happen, in a sense, right? Like, it's a, an opportunity, an experiment on a scale that you couldn't possibly design, and it was effective, it seems. That's right. I mean, it's worth celebrating. I think it, it, is, a, it is only a short-term measure, but I think one thing I'd mention is a lot of the conversations I had with people around homelessness during lockdown uh, mentioned the it's a now sort of infamous picture of Las Vegas where there was a parking lot out in front of a hotel and they had painted white squares two metres by two metres on the ground for homeless people to sleep in. Over the weekend, authorities in Las Vegas needed to find additional sleeping space for the city's sizable homeless population when a 500-bed overnight shelter closed after a client tested positive for the new coronavirus. Officials turned a parking lot into a makeshift shelter, saying spaces for sleeping were drawn six feet apart in observance of federal social distancing guidelines. Obviously that was just one example from the US and those people were put into shelters, but I spoke to Chris Varelli from the City Mission who said, you know, when the history is written about COVID in New Zealand, on the first or the second day, we thought about the homeless and we got them into homes. How did that work? Because motels cost money, the homeless people don't have a huge amount of money, the NGOs that look after them don't have a huge amount of money, many of them run on the smell of an oily rag. So how did the finance work and how is it continuing to go? So I, I should mention that there was sort of a, a unique set of circumstances that hasn't come about before, which allowed all these rough sleepers, or nearly all the rough sleepers in major centres in the country, uh, to be placed into housing, and it was a number of factors. One of them was the the urgency of a, of a public health disaster. The second one was no tourism. So all of a sudden you have all these motels and capacity freeing up. Another interesting one is Airbnb properties, so this is also as a result of tourism drying up, all of a sudden became available, and these are exactly the sort of houses that NGOs want to get their their hands on because they're you know they're small, relatively cheap central city properties. And then you had government underwriting the whole thing. So government came in early and said, uh, we're going to put $100 million uh, towards uh, putting people in motels, and that will not only get them off the street for now, it'll guarantee them 
uh, um, a place for a year. That sounds like a lot, right, $100 million, but it's worth keeping in mind that New Zealand spends about 2 to $3 billion on housing subsidies a year, so that's once you include accommodation supplement, uh, rental um, subsidies for state houses, and temporary accommodation. So $100 million, and we're already spending about $100 million a year on putting people up in motels. So that cost is covered, and that will be covered until next year. And so, <laughs> as the minister said when I talked to her, uh, Megan Woods, the housing minister, that gives them the breathing room to find better solutions. Now we find ourselves in a curious position after years or decades of dragging our feet up the staircase of progress. COVID came along, gave us a big kick up the bum, and we ended up taking a giant leap. But that brings its own pressure. Progress brings expectation. So where do we go from here? And how do we stop from slipping back? Helsinki in Finland is considered sort of the place that's got the closest to getting rid of homelessness, not just rough sleepers, but all sort of um, homelessness. And it did this by uh, basically offer, unconditionally offering houses to anyone that needed them. So similar to what Housing First is in New Zealand. It also needed to support that with a whole lot of other measures. So it has an incredible amount of state houses, about 60,000 in Helsinki alone. So that's as many as just about as many as we have in New Zealand. And also it's helped by other things like uh, the government owns a lot of land and owns its own construction company, so it can really ramp up. So it's not enough to just have those measures. You also need to stop people from getting evicted in the first place, so prevention measures. Um, and so they have measures around dealing with people who are running out of money, likely to get evicted, and also really strong tenants' rights and tenants' protections. So if we look at New Zealand, we have a few of those pieces in place. We have Housing at First, which is essentially offering people houses unconditionally and paying for it until they're in a position um, to stand on their own feet. Mm-hmm. We're behind on state houses. There is now a real ramping up of state houses, and I was looking at data last week which showed actually this government's already built more state houses in less than three years, fewer than three the, three years than the previous government in nine years. Mm-hmm. So, But that's still well behind. And they are now prioritising the keeping people in tenancies, so preventative measures that is become a priority so they are doing that and the last piece of that puzzle is around um, greater tenants rights and protecting um, them against eviction and that is part of reforms that are going through at the moment so the pieces are in place but still quite a lot of work to do there it does raise the question of you know like if we essentially got rough sleepers off the streets in six weeks I think people are entitled to say why couldn't we have done this earlier um, and I agree with that to an extent, but I also am sympathetic to the government's position that there were a unique set of circumstances which we simply could not have set up ourselves and that allowed us to get to the place where we are now. When I spoke to Housing, Housing Minister Megan Woods, she said that this was the government's goal, eradicating homelessness, eradicating rough sleeping, and this simply brought it forward. Um, as someone who's covered housing and homelessness for a long time, I, I, I'm a bit cynical about statements like that. But at the same time, she's right in that COVID presented a unique set of circumstances which allowed us to speed up some of those things. The key issue being around capacity, housing supply. It's always been one of the main issues, um, just having places for people to go. It's as simple as that. 
there will be a lot of pressure on them as a government who has um, preached kindness and has also now taken the shackles off in terms of its budget constraints to not go backwards in, in terms of homelessness. I think it's inevitable that you'll see a few more people return to the street as we go back to normality, just as everything just loosens up a bit post-lockdown. But uh, they will surely have to see this as an opportunity now that they have everyone in so close and with a roof over their head to move them into a more permanent situation. This is something they've outlined in like a high-level plan um, that by 2023 they want homelessness to be rare, brief and non-recurring. That's their goal and they're in a very good position to do that because they have everyone you know, in, in motels and with a roof over their head now. You know, there's amazing things that have happened in the few weeks that since COVID was announced, um, we were able to, I guess we talked about how we've been able to move mountains to support people. I mean, we wouldn't have had to have done what we did if we had a system which took care for the needs of our vulnerable from the beginning. And so that's the lesson for us now to say, actually, what sort of Aotearoa New Zealand do we want? Do we want one where people are living on our streets that don't have access to health care, that don't have access to mental health care where they need it, that aren't getting the support so they're living in these extreme and vulnerable spaces? Or do we want to recognise that actually poverty is a pandemic, which we've had for generations, and if we put the same or even a half of the energy and the political will into addressing poverty, that we wouldn't actually have to worry about this? That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell and Sharon Brett Kelly. And thanks to the NZ Herald's Isaac Davison and Aaron Hendry, who spoke to Jesse Chang. Kaki te ano.